0: Tim Neal here, and this is a silly opening perhaps, but I was recently reminded that different people have their different customs and habits when it comes to boiling water for tea. Here in Nam or Melbourne, Australia, many people follow the Antipodean habit of using an electric kettle that you plug into a wall rather than, say, a kettle that you put uh, on an open flame. So folks here often say, can you please flick the kettle on or can you pop on the jug when you want a cup of tea? I've seen these phrases mystify many, popping on a jug sounds pretty odd. But anyway, this is a circuitous route perhaps, but it's the way I've chosen to suggest that you put the kettle on for a conversation that, as you'll hear, is and is not about tea. In this episode, our very own Matt Barlow is joined by guest host Michael Dunford from the Australian National University to talk to the anthropologists Maitri Jagatheson and Sarah Besky. Maitri is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Santa Clara University. Her research has focused on the social and economic experiences of Tamil women, tea plantation residents and workers in Sri Lanka, where she's conducted field research since 2005. Her work can be found in numerous academic journals, as well as the very excellent 2019 book published by the University of Washington Press, Tea and Solidarity, Tamil Women and Work in Post-War Sri Lanka. Sarah is Associate Professor of International and Comparative Labour and Labour Relations at Cornell University, and like Dr. Jagathessan, she has over 15 years of experience researching the tea industry, but with a focus on India and Indian tea. Dr. Besky has two books on the topic, the first called The Darjeeling Distinction, Labour and Justice on Fair Trade Tea Plantations in India, which came out in 2014, and the second out last year, that is 2020. Tasting Qualities, The Past and Future of Tea. In this episode, three Jigethesan and Sarabeski both reflect on the twists and turns of settling on their research topics, and then turning their dissertations into books. Listening to conversations like this, and also I add a recent episode of Zora's Daughters, a podcast titled On the Shoulders of Our Ancestors, these kinds of conversations underline for me the continuing need for academics and their institutions to ensure that postgraduate researchers have the time and space to follow some leads, to see where conversations and events go before really committing to a particular research project. My three and Sarah also talk about, of course, the allure of tea as it once a kind of hook for readers and also an interpretive paradigm for understanding the social world's and histories through which this commodity is produced and circulated, taste, distinction, labour, solidarity, injustice. There's a lot of major key words of economic and cultural anthropology for you all to steep in or stew on in this episode. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. There had to be a tea pun somewhere. So enjoy this conversation between Matt Barlow, Michael Dunford, my three and Sarah Besky.
1: so much. This is so lovely to be in a virtual space with all of you. So yeah, I think that, you know, I took my first anthro courses as an undergraduate at Georgetown, and I actually had my heart set out doing a PhD program in classics, which I think was very different. And so I was a classics major as well so studying Latin and Greek. And so I took an anthropology course to really very candidly fulfill a social science requirement. And I think what I liked about it was that it had an engaged component that was not in classics. And so not in the translation and kind of in a book. And in terms of tea, it's funny. I don't think it's something that I really set to study. I love tea and I always had it growing up every day as a child and especially salon tea. But my original project was about children and trauma in the context of Sri Lanka's civil war. So I had done my master's thesis on memories among older men who had done some you know, affiliations with the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, either through being forcibly recruited or avoiding recruitment when they were about teenagers and maybe young adults. But then in 2006, when I did preliminary work, the ceasefire between the government and the LTT was breaking down. So ethically, I had to pivot and you know, my advisor who had worked long in the tea industry and who... Sarah knows as well, Valentine Daniel suggested, you know, have you ever thought about similar issues that you're thinking about development, memory, and also work, but in the in the tea sector. And I had to learn a whole different set of literatures. And even though Sri Lanka is quite small, it was a very quick turnaround in terms of, you know, taking exams in a completely different subject. And then I ended up, yeah, talking about tea plantation areas and thinking about NGO
2: development. And how cool. about you, Sarah? Yeah.
3: For me, I mean, I hadn't heard of anthropology ever until I went to college. I ended up in an introductory class, not really knowing why I was there. I think, you know, I had a couple of friends who took it and just having this revelation when I'm sitting there about that this is a method and a form of critical inquiry that was kind of really aligned with what I was doing myself and the way I was kind of approaching the world where kind of curiosity was built into the method as well as deliberate forms of unthinking and unknowing to denaturalizing ideas and things and processes within the world. And that just kind of was this huge, like, sparked for me and i was like wow there's this whole form of inquiry where i get to kind of think and engage the world in in this particular way and i, I remember the introduction to cultural anthropology class i've been th- actually thinking about it a lot recently because i've been watching i don't know which one i get them confused the queen or the crown whatever the hot one is right now where it, where like the backdrop is you know vi- violence in northern ireland and the anthropologist who was teaching my introduction to cultural anthropology class studied the ira and i was like holy shit Wow. (laughs) Like it kind of was a way of critically thinking about kind of this whole zeitgeist that was the chatter on the evening news in my childhood. And so it was also that kind of tangibleness of the subject that I was really quite intrigued with. Anthropology as a subject and the classes that I was in and the people I was talking with kind of gave me something that I was excited about um, for the first time I think ever like, (laughs) ever in like, I I did things because I could do them. And so I try to kind of remind myself a lot about why I do what I do. And it's and it is that kind of ability to critically engage the world around me. So I went to kind of grad school with that kind of mind. Um, Again, in undergrad, I'd kind of thought about stuff and how stuff kind of holds social processes, institutions, people work together and how it kind of consolidates all of this social life into these material objects. And like my three, I kind of started grad school doing something totally different. I was working on Poshmina production, right? These super fancy, bougie shawls. (laughs) like the ceasefire in Sri Lanka at about that time in the the world, the civil war in in Nepal had kind of gotten to a point where I couldn't do work in rural areas that I wanted to. So I moved from Nepal to Darjeeling, right? And so I wanted to kind of keep working with Nepali, which is i had worked in Nepal after undergraduate and I wanted to keep studying and kind of thinking in Nepali and I wanted to study stuff and work and women and I drank tea and I wanted to know more about it. So it was really kind of this falling backwards into studying Darjeeling tea and it worked like and actually I've been able to kind of do a lot of theoretical and conceptual work with history and anthropology that wouldn't have been the questions to ask of Pashmina so it was this kind of
4: fortuitous falling backwards I guess we want to know what kind of choices you made to move from a dissertation to a book
1: You know, so the time was 2005. So right after the Indian Ocean tsunami, I I did a trip going to the East Coast. And part of that was through the master's work that I was doing, but also through a volunteer trip to work in children's homes. And so they were kind of combined in that sense. And I was interested in kind of exploring a potential field site. This was right when the ceasefire was still intact, but there was still a lot of recruitment danger, a lot of special task forces and things happening in the East Coast. And so it was pretty dangerous, but you were able to get there. And so I remember during that time being really intensely aware of being an American citizen and also being with American volunteers in, in Sri Lanka and especially after the tsunami. So there was this kind of influx of international development workers. It was very common to see obviously white or you know non-Sri Lankan people in Sri Lanka working for long periods of time and, and you know taking up space and also lots of money flowing. Going in And so when I had to pivot, that was on my mind, this idea of this money coming in and tangibly changing things. So I'm physically moving people's houses from the shoreline. And I thought about it in relation to the tea estates, because At the time in Sri Lanka, you know, a lot of anthropology was focusing on violence and conflict and ethnicity, and the plantations in many ways had been neglected in terms of scholarship. There was this older scholarship um, with a few people who were doing work, like Daniel Bass Sarah's colleague at Cornell, and I think that, you know, it was interesting to see how that work had really been kind of structurally around issues of, in a very traditional sense, kind of Demontian caste studies, right, village studies and ritual, and everything seemed kind of frozen in time. And even the women's scholarship seemed, it was very much looking at traditional relationships of women always working on the plantation. So I started thinking about, you know, what are NGOs doing in the plantation sector? Are they having any impact on, you know, the way in which communities are forming? Because these are communities that are stateless and that don't have, many many of them don't have citizenship and don't have, you know, national identity cards in a civil war. So they have to literally at a checkpoint have a photocopy of this is the estate I'm on with a a residency, right, that's kind of scribbled. And it's very informal. And by luck, you know, the checkpoint person will say, okay, yeah, I recognize you from like two days ago, or, you know, a month ago, you're good to go, or you'd be, you know, Detained, right? So there were these kind of moments that I thought about, you know, what is the presence of an NGO? And that's how the original project started that I got funding for, which was what is the effect of an NGO on an estate? So tangible development, like a water tank or a creche or a school. And then when I got there, it was what I realized was NGOs come and go and and there's a lot of fighting for funding and there's a lot more that, you know, once people start to talk in the NGO world, it's not written on paper. So there's these official reports like donor reports and funding reports that were given to the Ministry of Defense. People were talking otherwise, right? They were saying, well, yeah, there's a competition for funds. This NGO died out, you know, we don't do this here because so-and-so a state manager, is telling us we have to fix his pipes too if we have to fix the workers' pipes. So there was all these kind of, you know, micro relations based around caste, based around privilege and status. And I realized that the research questions as they were standing were probably not the best research questions to begin with and actually on the ground wouldn't fly. And so I ended up partly because I think because of surviving in doing fieldwork during a war, I wasn't going to go in and say, I'm going to do a survey of all these households, like a military officer would do. (laughs) So, and I really likened the methodologies that I saw in the older studies, and I had a hard time distancing them from, you know, the types of surveillance I was seeing. So I just said, I'm not going to do surveys, I'm not going to do household surveys, I'm not going to do even structured interviews for that matter. And so I, I really ended up taking a different approach by working on feminist methods, but working with women primarily. You know, it was interesting. We were, I think we were just talking about this maybe on Twitter somewhere about how the books can be really different from the dissertation. And I think mine is really different in many ways. And thankfully so. (laughs) So, you know, I think that I did field work in 2008, 2009 and had to leave after a year, right? That was the visa that was, you know, and I, I was because of the war, I wasn't able to extend it. And then I ended up going back in 2014 through 2018 and 19. And that's the last time I was there. I was 19, sadly. Those times going back really fundamentally changed the book and made the book what it was.
4: It's really interesting to hear how, yeah, your perspective changed in these things that could be a a paragraph, like something you hear stirrings of can then become, you know, like one of the most powerful parts of the story later on. Sarah, Darjeeling Distinction was largely based on your dissertation. Is that right?
3: Correct. I probably didn't mention because actually until you asked about it, I haven't remembered this in a long time. I probably had like five or six projects between Pashmina and Darjeeling Tea, right, that I would try on and like I tell my own graduate students like you have to kind of try it on like a hat imagine like what questions you would ask so I did all of this imaginative work and like many false starts and like it's not like I miraculously moved from pashmina to tea that was a very like some sort of seamless transition it was not seamless you can ask my advisor I'm sure she would remind me about how um scattered in fact I was but we'll pretend that it was seamless so yeah so I was holding tea in my hand and I wanted to kind of think more about it like What kind of forms of work kind of brought this thing into being? And not just like specifically tea, like I actually put yourself in the Waymack machine to go back to the mid 2000s when fair trade was a big, huge salvation for industrial agricultural commodities. It was hot and it was getting rolled out late 1990s through the 2000s to all sorts of different commodities. Tea kind of being the second after coffee. But like rice and sports balls and mangoes and you know just fill in the blank, you know, you could affix a fair trade logo to it. And this was part of the unraveling, I think, of fair trade. And the only way to kind of involve tea in the fair trade system was to involve plantations. Whereas like there's an expansive amount of coffee cooperatives, right, that kind of were the ground and the starting point of the fair trade movement. Um, right, there's a whole history there. But in order to expand the market for fair trade, right, to include things like tea and bananas and so forth, you had to include plantations. And so the operating question that I started my dissertation with is, what does this mean for workers? Not just like workers in general, plantation workers specifically. And I showed up in Darjeeling and short answer to the question is like, it didn't mean that much at all. People didn't know what it was. Like like on fair trade certified plantations, workers had no idea what fair trade was. And I'm like, this is interesting. So like, how is this a thing kind of became... The second, you know, operating dissertation question is like, how can fair trade be this be all and end all to, you know, large scale agricultural crops, but like the workers who are enveloped in the system have no idea how it is. And so then that, you know, led me to kind of like, unpack how fair trade actually works on the ground, right, especially like when these lofty ideas, right, which may work in coffee, are applied to plantation context, like how they kind of don't work. And then that led me to ask kind of other questions. It's like, okay, so if fair trade doesn't mean anything to workers, then what does mean something to workers? What does kind of frame questions about how the world should be, how it should be different, where change can happen and where change should happen? That kind of led me to big questions about like, what is the plantation in the 21st century, especially like kind of for Euro-American readers, where the plantation is kind of thought of as a bygone product of a past age, right, especially in U.S. context? How does the plantation exist and persist in the present? Then the second thing like that I didn't expect to happen was... Right when I showed up in the field, right, in, like, fall of 2007, there was a separatist movement where there was a re-articulation of the Gorkaland movement, which was a movement for a separate state of Gorkaland, right? So kind of breaking off the northern part of the existing state of West Bengal, which is mostly Nepali-speaking, into a separate state. Didn't know it was going to happen, but it re-emerged in uh, the fall of 2007, right, about two months before I got to the field, so that winter. So then kind of all of these questions about what is a plantation in the 21st century, what makes work meaningful, what should change, like how can change happen for the plantation, all became kind of inflected by what is Gorka ethnicity? What does it mean to be a Nepali in India? So what I did is a kind of get as much money as you can and come back when it runs out style of fieldwork. So I did almost three years of dissertation field work. I mean, I came back to get a new visa and like went back. So the dissertation is based on like a very clear ethnographic present. It's a long kind of period of time, 2008, 2009, 2010. I mean, I've gone, I go back all the time, but the book is that period of time where fair trade, super hot, Gorkaland is huge and very much kind of a part of everyday life in Darjeeling, but also things like, and this is the case with Ceylon tea as well, where geographical indication was something that was being um, rolled out by the government of India, right? So if you kind of have Gorkaland being kind of a more, if you will, grassroots, like from the place itself, movement, fair trade, very much coming in from Euro-American consumerist desires and kind of this weird meso-level project of geographical indication, which is, of course, international, but was being rolled out and being kind of pushed by the government of India as a way to protect Darjeeling and as a form of intellectual property, Darjeeling tea, and the, the word Darjeeling tea is a form of intellectual property. So those kind of pieces became these empirical cuts That I made onto the plantation and that was what my dissertation was (laughs) and that's what the book was. For the dissertators right now this may seem like a fanciful if not crazy thing to say but what I was told and I think it's actually a really useful piece of advice if you maybe just let it sink in is like don't worry about writing a dissertation like nobody (laughs) nobody wants to read a dissertation. I think my advisor even said that dissertations are boring Um, because they are. And so to kind of think about it, not as a product, but as a process and to kind of think about the articulation of like moving from fieldwork to writing as processual, right, as a book rough draft. So the dissertation is, you know, inherently partial. And so to kind of embrace that partiality, the key thing in moving from a dissertation to the book is to think about like, what is the thing? What is the one thing? That this book is about, not what is like the 17 different concepts that may be really awesome in your dissertation, but like what's kind of like the one thing that it's really about. And so to kind of hold that in your hand from the start was quite helpful in being able to move quite quickly from dissertation to book.
2: Uh, it's so good to hear about those processes from both of you. So, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little earlier, my three, but in, in what ways are both of these projects? both about tea and not about tea right so tea sort of forms in some ways this kind of backdrop to these other processes that are going on but it is also this material present that does shape the lives of a lot of the people that you spent a lot of time with so yeah how is it both the subject and not the subject
1: It's such a funny question, because I was thinking back, the fact that tea is in the title of the book was not my first choice. And so my editor convinced me otherwise. But I do think it is actually so much of what anchored a lot of my fieldwork experiences. And, you know, I think most of it was sensorially, tea was a part of my day all the time, you know, and not only just drinking tea, like literally six or seven times a day in people's homes, but also like one of my most daily memories is, taking the bus and smelling tea when you go by a factory with open windows. You know, the idea of tea as salon tea, and this is something I talk about in the book, you know, salon would never give up the name salon tea, even though salon became Sri Lanka in 1972. So that was the one vestige that kind of, you know, everyone wants to hold on to. And it was this site for people. It was something that was a ritual in the morning, you wake up, you make tea, and everyone drinks it together, right? And um, there's different ways to drink tea, you can and drink sugar with your hand, you can lick the sugar and then drink the tea, or you can have tea with milk, which is the horrible way to drink tea, right? <laughs> and so there's all these different kind of hierarchies of, you know, what is good tea, what is high tea, you know, and it's all mixed with caste oppression and also layers of migration and different places throughout Sri Lanka. Physically, it was everywhere too. And, you know, I would see stray tea leaves everywhere, not on the bush. And, you know, there would be roots exposed after mudslides or just roots exposed in general by the road. And so I was constantly thinking about it. But at the same time, I wasn't necessarily wanting to look for it, if that makes sense. And so I would avoid often talking about it because the first thing, if I said I'm working in the plantations, everyone would say, you have everything you need to know about your topic. And I was like, really? I haven't shared anything with you. (laughs) I just said I was working here. And they would be like, go to the Tea Research Institute, go to this place. And there were these kind of, you know, vast libraries of botany and all these different ways of seeing the tea subject as a clinical scientific laboratory. And this is what you study. And I just attended something today. So I'm just thinking of this because they made no mention of workers, but they were talking about tea breeding. And I was like, this is interesting, right? So I'm thinking also Sarah's book and like this idea of quality and, you know, the investment, right, in this presentation. So in a way, I kind of avoid that subject of tea or that tea, like this is taking up so much space on the estate, like literal square footage of estate management's offices taking up check rolls upon check rolls of like dust, (laughs) mite-ridden check rolls from the 1800s that people are just holding onto and the machinery, you know, even if it was rusty machinery, be like the back, you know, outside in front of the factory, but, you know, everything was just taking up space. So I almost wanted to think of the things beyond tea that were taking up space otherwise on the plantation and what was the plantation beyond the tea? I still have a little conflicted relationship with the fact that the title has the the name tea in it. I think it's a little misleading, but it's also hopefully gives us a sense of like where the commodity comes from and makes us think of the space in which the commodity is actually cultivated.
3: And how about you, Sarah? Tea is like a hook for me right similarly i mean like there's a reason why t is in your title my3 and it's because it gets people to right it gets people to write like rewrite commodities as well as study them and so but to kind of think about the commonality like the interesting commonality that t kind of has in it presumed nobility i'm not saying like it is like the psychic unity right but the presumed nobility of the thing itself is a really interesting kind of hook so t unqualified does that kind of hooking but the things that i purposely try to play with in the Darjeeling book are like qualified teas. So like fair trade tea, organic tea, biodynamic tea, Darjeeling tea, how like the qualification of things, consolidates all of this information as kind of normative, as kind of essentialized, as often, right, depending on what that qualification is, feminized, euphoric, idyllic, all of these other kind of sensations attach themselves to these adjectives and circulate around with that T. And so back to like your original question, what got me into anthropology is like, okay, let's take these things that are as boring as adjectives or as something as normal as T and kind of destabilize all of the stuff we think we know about it. And so I think the hook of the book is to kind of use tea to draw people into, right? Again, thinking about the plantation as a socio kind of ecological economic system that is held together by things that are far outside of its gates and that are both material and immaterial. And something like Gorkaland, right? Which is a very, very, very area studies conversation. We're talking about publishers and people who write the titles of our books. It's a very narrow topic. How do I get people to care about Gorkaland? I tell them about fancy tea. I use tea to do other work, but at the same time then it is obviously about tea, like, I don't know if you do this, my dear, but I talk with a ton of tea buyers, like yeah. tons and tons and tons of tea buyers and people who like own tea shops. Like literally I just got an email in my inbox that I need to answer. And I love this, like, don't get me wrong. Thinking about the effects of our scholarship or kind of public engagement of our scholarship Perhaps I thought that I would, like, be working with government bureaucrats, like, way back in the mid-2000s, like, to reform commentation, you know, structures on tea plantations. Yeah, that was a pipe dream. That's, like, obviously not going to happen. But what I can do, right, is I can talk to tea retailers, like, people who sell tea, which are who I don't ever study. Like, I don't pretend to study consumption. I don't actually want to study consumption. But people read my book and they send me emails like this and be like, so... I thought I knew what I was doing and I thought what I was doing was okay, right? With regard to buying tea from certain plantations and like understanding that fair trade or organic or whatever had material effects in the lives of workers. But when you're saying, maybe rethink this. And it's like, yes, like, that's great. That's awesome. Like, you know, like, like I succeeded to me. It's like I set the terms on which I can succeed and I succeeded. And it's that kind of like where power consolidates itself in The capitalist system is the more these people who are buying tea and moving it around the world start to think about the systems that they perpetuate and like how workers are completely disenfranchised and dispossessed and, you know, just like totally, these are totally fundamentally unequal systems. Like that's great. Yeah, we've been,
1: I think, at a few conferences where we've talked about tea with actual buyers, you know, and at the one that I was attending today, I think that it is really fascinating. I was just doing a lot of thinking today, specifically about kind of these academic for profit slash conferences, where people are in the room together talking about these kind of strategies of like, what is an ethical business. And I've had these conversations too, like on LinkedIn, you know, and then specifically, that's where I get found, which is, you know, you yeah. wrote this book on tea, you know, this is what I'm doing with my company. You know, I'm a small business, this is what's happening. And I find it really refreshing to have candid conversations. And especially in Sri Lanka, going back in 2019, with the book, I think part of me was really worried, giving it to the Planters Association. And then another part of it was like, you know, we have things to learn. And the head of the Planters Association was like, No, I'm really glad that you're giving me a copy, I have a collection of books, and I need to know, you know, what is sustainable? What is this? And, and a part of me is like, you know, we have a lot you have a lot of work to do, you know, um, in terms of what is sustainable. And we're not maybe on the same page. But I think that even having the kind of uncomfortable conversation about the subject itself, they're like, well, what did you do in the book? And I was like, well, I talked to workers, right? Um, And that's really all I you know, I talked to workers, I talked about unionizing and about a living wage. And I think that at the heart of it, you know, this is a conversation we're having in our country right now in the United States about about a living wage, right? And what constitutes minimum wage versus living and these are issues that people need to have and so if the book can do that in some way that's
3: great yes put tea in the title but that's what's so interesting about these kind of industry conversations is like things as basic as how do people get paid and with what are kind of the things that are super shadowy for the people who make a living on tea right that aren't workers i'm not saying that T V retailers are ignorant like there's actually just like like, how do you find that out? If I'm a tea retailer, I go to a plantation and I'm sold the most amazing bill of goods about how workers make like you know in Darjeeling, they make like twelve dollars an hour. And you know it's it's such a wonderful place. Where do you find out information otherwise? Yeah. You know, when we think about fair
1: trade, even the audits are completely orchestrated, right? When it comes to, you know, certifications. And so the story that I thought was the most kind of telling was a friend said, you know, he went one week and was going to wash his hands at a wash station and it was working because they were on the audit. And so, you know, (laughs) someone from Europe was there and he's like going to wash his hands. And then the next week he came back and like the tap wasn't working. They're like, oh, sir, we just fixed that for the lady that came, (laughs) you know? So there were these Obvious performances mm. of what work is and what dignity is and what a safe workplace is. And so these are the kinds of things I was interested in disturbing. And I think it's hard to deny when you actually encounter it as a buyer or retailer.
2: I'm curious about the the political stakes and claims that are made in, in both Darjeeling Distinction and Tea and Solidarity. And Martha, you kind of fall on the solidarity side and you articulate this solidarity that is both I think, enacted through your fieldwork, but then also described in in certain ways in which it is being manifested within Sri Lanka by women workers. And Sarah, you kind of fall on the justice side of things and looking for justice in regards to labour on plantations and looking at this commodity chain. So I'm wondering if I could... Yeah, ask you both to elaborate a little bit more on my three this idea of solidarity and how that's performed and how that is articulated. And Sarah, you're riffing on justice and how that's articulated in the plantation.
3: Yeah, I mean, so justice was something that I kind of observed being done for workers, but never something that workers were allowed to or were given the space to kind of articulate what justice might mean. And so like playing with justice as kind of a normative discourse that was able to be articulated only by those in power. But that being said, how I kind of think about justice with regard to political change, you know, or plantation futures in Darjeeling or in India, maybe writ large, and there may or may not be overlaps with the Sri Lankan case, is it's about land. It's about, you know, the answer to the last question, my answer to the last question, My three's answer to the last question as well. Houses aren't owned. Land, in the case of India, sits with the state, right? So all the plantations in Darjeeling, all 87 of them, just as the case in Assam or elsewhere, are state of West Bengal land. Right, and so kind of thinking about the super basic like land labor relationships that kind of undergird the plantation. So for me, kind of getting at fundamental change goes to where my energy and my attention kind of shifts to like how to recalibrate those relationships.
1: Yeah, you know, and Sri Lanka, I think, is a. It- It's a complicated place because of the war and because it's an island. And I always think about this in terms of regional studies and how Sri Lanka relates itself to India, specifically, you know, because seeing relationships between now, you know, Modi and our current president in Sri Lanka and seeing that kind of relationship and the influence of Hindu nationalism. And, you know, when I think about what are the politics of the plantations, it has always traditionally been labor organizing that has been male dominant and caste dominant within the hill country. Thummel community, and so starting from the first visits where you know Nehru came to the hill country saying we need to save these hill country thummels from this plight of starvation in the 1950s at the Commonwealth to kind of thinking through the Salon Workers Congress and you know other forms of labor organizing, there's been this kind of politics of patronage that's always been in relation to Sinhala and thummel nationalism, and it's never been a kind of radical politics on the plantation, but there have been moments, but they have been. Kind of squashed, right? Um, They've been squashed because of threat to the state. So there was an anti-castist movement in the 1950s, but it largely got, you know, surpassed by the Singhala Labor Party movement, which wasn't really thinking through issues of caste oppression. But there was a movement of caste oppression. And I think for me, the kind of radical politics of that shape plantation life right now and what I'm doing kind of in newer work is thinking through what are the vocabularies of caste oppression that. That Sri Lanka has that are distinct from India and from other places in South Asia, because caste is obviously so critical to the ways in which hill country peoples have experienced oppression. And so the vocabulary that Sri Lanka has is quite different and we have to acknowledge those distinctions, but at the same time there is this history of migration between India and also histories of Hindu nationalism that are not even histories. They're quite contemporary, right? In the way that we're tracking them and seeing them, especially in the North right now. So I think that's what I'm interested in is like this radical politics of like that would disturb the plantation as a physical site. And then also one that didn't invest or refuse to invest in the kind of labor organizing that wants to maintain the plantation as an industry.
2: Could I also just ask you to elaborate a little bit more on the solidarity element of tea and solidarity, particularly with regards to how right now, there are large movements around the world, particularly by white folks performing solidarity. And I think it is an important thing to sort of reflect upon. And I think you've potentially got some key insights for some of us about how solidarity is performed and how it is articulated.
1: When I wrote that chapter on contingent solidarities, I was very much thinking in the frame of long time activists and labor organizers that had had to adjust constantly in order to survive. So their solidarities were contingent very much on funding, they were contingent on whether the defense ministry was going to have to view their budgets, right? You know, so they were very much adjusting day to day, whether to see what they could do the most to support their constituents. And it was interesting to think of contingency for me at the time, because it was very much about the end of the war and this immediate aftermath where landscapes of national economy were changing, but also the plantation industry was changing. So, you know, when I see these kind of events, a lot of it did seem very performative and it's interesting you think about performative solidarity because obviously viewing a state department program is the most performative you can get right i'm <laughs> going into a plantation when us state department officials come and they make you take a picture and put it on facebook so i think like these kinds of moments were so obviously performative and and they were so official and then i was like what is happening behind the scenes and how do people still survive because that funding's going to go away in a day and people are not going to remember you you know and people are not going to remember this movement so i became interested in these kind of life longer histories of labor organizing and something that was more sustainable and i always you know now thinking about solidarity i recently read you know and reread robin dg kelly's you know interview solidarity is not a market exchange and this idea that in sri lanka and thinking through his language you shouldn't have to be like the other person or want the same things the other person in order to support them, right? You should be able to stand by them. And I think that's a really huge issue in Sri Lanka. You know, we're thinking about reconciliation, ideas of transitional justice, but whose transition? Right. And so some people have long transitioned and are ready to say done. And so, you know, these transitions temporality wise are something that Sri Lanka is still dealing with. It's considered a failed process, transitional justice. And so my newer work is kind of thinking about what does it mean to actually stand alongside somebody you don't have anything in common with, that you have no investment, financial or anything for their future. It's not going to be tied to you in any way. Um, That's currently the politics of the plantations right now. India is funneling money into the plantations through Modi and this Indian housing trust. And they get to put their names, right? The Gandhian building, this building, and it's all Modi's names everywhere. But What if solidarity didn't look like that in bilateral agreements, right? So we have to kind of re-envision how, and I'm curious how Hill Country Thummels are working against that. And it's very difficult to work against it because of the kind of just the tightness of the politics right now.
4: I guess this is kind of a turn away from like the commodity end of things, but something that Matt and I were struck by, and I guess Sarah, we like still hammering Darjeeling Distinction. We'll get to tasting qualities at some point, I promise. But in both Tea Solidarity and Darjeeling Distinction, you're both looking at communities that have a history of displacement. We wanted to hear a bit more about that and hear a bit more about what these histories of migration and displacement have to do with like how people view making homelands or like making the place where they are now in the communities where you've worked.
3: It's an interesting question with regard to thinking about tea in India kind of broadly, but when, so like Darjeeling was kind of carved out, right? The land was annexed. The plantations were carved out kind of in a period after the expansion of the Assam plantations. And so we're talking like 1850, super early plantations into really kind of the 1860s. And there's a historical kind of coincidence with the dispossession of kind of tribal, non-caste, low-caste farmers in Nepal Um, Right. So where high caste farmers are kind of moving on to the nice arable land and pushing non high caste Hindus off of their land. The British are trying to kind of set up these plantations in Darjeeling and through these labor recruiters who would go between Darjeeling and villages in Nepal would kind of recruit whole families to work on the plantations in Nepal. So it's a different kind of labor system. It is not the indenture system you see in the Northeast. It's this hybrid recruitment system where they're still, you know, relying on these labor recruiters, but in a very different form that is not necessarily indenture, but it's not free labor. Workers are paid nearly nothing. Most of their compensation is in land, is in the ability to farm for themselves and grow their own food. Like the one thing that they're being denied in Nepal. And so... Like you can see, in terms of like kinship, you know, networks spread across Darjeeling. People can trace their ancestry to singular villages or the same village in Nepal because of the way this, you know, the sardars, these labor recruiters, worked. So it's a really kind of interesting history that just kind of adds some texture to labor migration in the northeast broadly and the Himalayas broadly. And that's kind of why, right, there is such a huge uh, Nepali-speaking majority in the area. At the same time, right, 1860s, circa 1860s, uh, workers are going to South Bhutan as well. Nepalese are going to South Bhutan again for agricultural purposes and even into Assam as graziers and and kind of milk, as kind of uh, animal husbanders, right, for milk production. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's just kind of an interesting foil to what else is going on in India. But that history is not epiphenomenal to what's going on in the present with regards to articulations of the Gorkaland movement, right? And there's really interesting kind of work in Caribbean studies and elsewhere about thinking about the relationship between indentured workers, whether they're Indian or of African descent, and articulations of indigeneity. Shona Jackson's work, for example, on Creole indigeneity. And there's actually some kind of homology, right? There's an interesting kind of relationship or similarity, right? What's going on in Darjeeling, right? There's this articulations of kind of nativism And and indigeneity, right, as it grounds for belonging and a grounds for a reason for a separate state by what are technically, right, if you think about it, migrant workers. However, there is a geographical contiguity between Nepal and Darjeeling, right? It was at one point, one place. So there's also all these fuzzinesses that make it not the same as like what Shona Jackson is talking about with like, Again, workers from, slaves from Africa, indentured workers from India coming to the Caribbean, right? This massive migration, right? There's this kind of very small, to say that, you know, Gorkas aren't indigenous, it's quite bombastic, but then their claims to kind of indigeneity vis-a-vis other claims to indigeneity in the Northeast are not quite the same. So that history kind of shapes what's going on in the present. As I kind of mentioned earlier, the compensation system is both in cash and in kind. Just like it was in the colonial period, there's actually nearly no cash. Workers make most of what they're supposed to get in kind, right? And this is labor law that was codified in the post-independence era, so in 1951. And so... Housing, food rations, medical facility, ambulances, firewood, and like just a host of other material benefits that workers are supposed to get, right, that justify the fact that management pays them a wage that is so far below minimum wage standards, right, because together the stuff and the money are supposed to equal this this other thing, um, right, this more than the minimum wage. That, I mean, and the houses are the biggest piece of that. I mean, in houses, and this actually dovetails with my three's work too, most of the workforce is women. Therefore, women's work is the reason why most men have houses. This is kind of something that is not lost on most of the people on the plantation, right? So it's the kind of fixity of women in place and the fixity of them and their jobs, right, that kind of keeps men in a house. Right. It's often these, these material provisions that management skimps on first. Right. It's really hard to not pay wages, but it's easy to like let the ambulance also operate like a taxi or maybe the doctor doesn't come this week or maybe for the next three years or, right, firewood, you guys don't need firewood, right? Like the, the material things are a lot easier to kind of skimp on and they do, you know, management kind of skimps on them all the time. But workers and through unions often try to demand that at least at the very least the labor law gets followed. And lo and behold, even on fair trade plantations, right, labor law is not actually necessarily being followed. But at the same time, right, these are the things that workers are demanding. At the same time, it's the provision of all of this stuff, more namely the fact that all of this stuff is a reason why they make next to nothing in actual wages, keeps people bonded to the plantation. Because if most of your compensation is your house, right, you're not going to want to leave that house, right? That's your bank account. All of the little kind of incremental cash payments that you do get, get put into kind of making that home livable for yourself and for the person generally, right, mostly women workforce, the woman is going to inherit your job, right, so that you have a place to die. And so this compensation structure that was born out of post-colonial labor law is the thing that's in a way kind of holding workers together. And it's kind of, there's a kind of straight genealogy from those recruitment tactics that the British used in the 1860s, right, to post-independence labor law until today.
1: You know, in the case of Sri Lanka, I'm always kind of interested in the fact that Sri Lanka is an island, right? How it's connected in terms of, you know, migration and the ways in which hill country Tamils that I worked with, how their ancestors who came through, you know, what was the Kangani or the recruitment system. And and in many ways to Fiji, Mauritius and other places, Mm -hmm. this was an operating system that a a number of scholars have worked on. So with the the community that I worked with, these are, you know, twice and thrice descendants of that migrant community. And it's always kind of a misnomer. I talk about this with Daniel Bass a lot too, with this idea that they say that they were brought by the British and they actually weren't brought by the British, right? So the Kangani system was very much grained and kinship relations. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so-and-so's uncle through this village or through this, um, you know, relation, um, whether it's a distant relation or through kind of word of mouth, very much localized and invested in, in terms of that relationship. But, you know, Hill Country Thummels, they came from the kind of earlier purposes before the plantations were to kind of build Salon's colonial infrastructure. So, you know, literally carving out and, you know, blasting out mountains and making roads and railroads, what was through in the Tamil word kadu or jungle, right? Or like forest creating these spaces that had previously been occupied by indigenous, but also Singhala and Tamil speaking communities. And in the South Central areas, largely uncultivated. So when coffee comes onto the scene and then is blighted out with a virus, with the leaf virus, that's the space in which tea comes into a different type of plantation in terms of its structure and the mod- Cropping. The idea of movement very much is like going on a parallel track to Singhala and Tamil nationalist. Pre independence vying for power when they know that independence is going to be handed to them, right, by the British. And it wasn't violent, right? And this is the whole story of Sri Lanka is that there was violence, but there wasn't violence in the way India experienced it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was very much this kind of very polite discussion about who's going to get power and who's going to have a seat at the table. And hill country Tamils and Indian and Pakistani origin uh, migrants were just left out, basically. They were saying, you don't get a seat. At the table, and they're considered alien. And that language is very clear in in the documentation, and Patrick Peebles and others have written about this. Thinking about those parallel tracks of this industry that's kind of booming, 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 and then seeing this kind of vibe for independence, and you see these workers. Vaigita writes about this, and and I talk about it in the book. It's like you see this crux of nationalism meeting with labor, right? And so this is kind of the huge political conflict in Sri Lanka. The, The really roots of it are about labor and labor struggle. And so on the Singhala side, you see this with Singhala labor movements, and then you see this in the South with insurrections with youth and the state kind of you know cramping down on insurrections. And then in the Hill Country, what you see is this you know statelessness for a large swath of workers, but then also people dispersed throughout the country. And so that statelessness starts in 1948 and then doesn't really formally end until 2003 three. But I know when I was there, there were at least, you know, right before a provincial council election in just one district, 20,000 people who did not have IC cards or citizenship to vote. And so it was very common to not have your citizenship. And so, you know, that kind of, you know, investment in a home is something that I think Hill Country Thumballs have long thought about because they have been denied, a physical home in that sense or an address, right? They've been official record, they've been denied that. But then on the other hand, politically, you have this Tamil nationalism, who hill country Tamils are Tamil speakers, but the Tamil nationalist kind of movements in the 70s were calling for self determination and very similar to Darjeeling, like thinking about Gorkaland and this idea of, you know, a separate state. And that separate state was kind of marked out. And when you see it on the island mapped out, Kind of the you know north and east kind of coastals, and where hill country Thummels primarily are in these pockets of the south south central areas, that's where they are. And Tamil nationalists, primarily caste dominant, and also definitely working within kind of systems of caste oppression, thinking about not wanting to you kind know, of take on hill country Thummels said well, that's our homeland, right? This is You're not part of our homeland. So if you want to come, maybe move up here and you could be our laborers, which is what ended up happening. When I think of mobility, I think the most clear one to me was in 2018, when these workers who are informal workers in Sri Lanka, in the capital, when the collective wage agreements were happening with the plantation unions and the plantation managements, and this was through kind of very formal negotiations, and they, of course, broke down. And And they were calling for a thousand rupee wage, which is right now about seven dollars and 50 cents. So not much. Right. Um, A day, a daily wage. And when they were calling for it, what ends up happening is this huge protest of, you know, kids that are kids of workers that are working in the capital. And they all wear black and they all pour onto the streets of Colombo and they literally like make the street black with their clothes and with, you know, just the mass of workers. And it was so clear that Colombo's infrastructure and economy was because of hill country thummels. And you just saw it in labor force, right? Coming out and protesting for a living wage. And this was right, you know, 2018. So well after the war and a kind of stark reality of, you know, you say hill country thummels are on the plantations, but the kids are right here, right? They're in cell phone shops. They're in garment shops. They're, you know, selling in pet market. They're everywhere. They're serving you tea in a restaurant on Galdonado road, right? So there's all these different ways in which a lot of Sri Lankans will deny that, but it was hard to deny. So that movement was so visceral to me in 2018 in terms of the contemporary sense. But I'm always just really fascinated in the archival too. And I talk about that in the book with how if you look close enough, you see that people were on the move and they were never wanting to stay. But at the same time, those homes mean so much, right? They mean so much, yet they are not owned um, and they could be wiped out in a second by a mudslide and there would be no assurance or insurance investment and then there's displacement. So just kind of grappling with that was like an everyday reality.
2: So awesome to hear you both <laughs> really sink into that question in detail. It was I really appreciated that. Mike, should we ask Sarah about her most recent work.
3: Yeah, that sounds good. So let me tell you about my most recent work. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, so I guess to describe the new book, I'll start at the very, very end. And in a way, maybe kind of just asking an absurdist question, you know, which would be an answer to your last question about kind of plantation politics. And it's just like, what would it mean to walk away from the plantation? Or what would it mean to walk away from tea? altogether, right? In India in this case, right? And even asking that question just doesn't even really in a way make sense because, right, of all the stuff that holds tea in, you know, in the present, in everyday life and in the economy. And so during my dissertation research, I, I went to these tea auctions Remember, I'm like working on fair trade and like fair trade kind of prides itself on being direct trade, right? So trade that moves from plantation to buyer, like directly unsullied by so-called intermediaries that extract value and take it away from producers and so the auction in this rhetoric was kind of demonized as one of those sullying intermediaries and I was like well how does that work like so like what's this auction thing how is the vast majority of tea in India actually sold and valued and moved around the world and that's you know it's not fair trade it's it's this auction and what's, you know when I actually went to the auction right I kind of started very much like my dissertation project like kind of asking like so how do you value fair trade and organic tea and you know these brokers these so backing up a second rate. Right tea moves from plantations to auctions in Calcutta, as well as kind of other major cities, including Colombo, right? So there's the same kind of corollary system in Sri Lanka as there is in East Africa, right? Moving from plantations around East Africa to um, Mombasa to a tea auction where imagine a lecture hall, like you're in your university lecture hall where kind of tea auctioneers kind of sit at the front and they auction off tea lot by lot by lot to buyers who are sitting in front of them. Like, so a very small controlled, Group of men, all men. Buyers are men. Brokers are men. It's just like this masculinist project. So okay, so I I went to these auctions and I wanted to kind of understand how tea was valued and you know the adjectives that made it meaningful in Euro-American markets were not the same adjectives that made it meaningful in India, right? For Indian buyers, there was in fact a whole kind of right emic linguistic practice for valuing tea, right? Words like cheesy and biscuity and knobbly, right? I won't get kind of into the details of that, but like this whole kind of framework for valuing tea. And these words are quite interesting because um, they index production practices on the plantation. So there is this direct relationship between the ways that tea is valued and the, the way it's assumed to be produced on the plantation. So these two institutions, the plantation and the auction kind of grew up together in India as kind of these colonial institutions, how tea is produced, how tea is sold. And as such, they're really hard to, pull apart. Um, You can't kind of can't pull apart the auction without the plantation, you can't pull apart the plantation without the auction. So the book is about kind of how how these things stick, how they're kind of how they persist, and how not not that they persist, because they're like old and trend systems, but they persist because of what quality is. And you know, I, I was taken by quality as this term of art because it kind of existed across the archives. So the book is kind of half archival, half ethnographic. Across the archives is something that didn't mean what it kind of means often to us in kind of can, you know, everyday parlance, right? It's like, Quality is good and things that don't have quality are bad. Right? Quality is this kind of shifting sense that is an object that is constantly worked on in industrial chemistry, in agronomy, in, in terms of labor, and in all of these different spaces. It's not a moral, it's not a quantitative relationship. It's not this more or less than proposition. It is kind of an objective analysis. And so that kind of got me thinking: okay, so like how is quality this thing? That kind of animates contemporary capitalism it animates colonial capitalism and how quality maybe at its root in a way is about kind of expectation it's about how we kind of expect things to be in the world it's about normative judgments about normative assumptions and right because like think about it right if you kind of have a thing that you you, you consume all the time and it's different than the, the time you had it last you think it's off you think it's it's bad the um perpetuation of sameness, right? The kind of perpetuation of standards is kind of built into how we, especially in kind of consumerist markets, kind of think and understand quality. And so if that's the case, right, then quality, right, how we expect tea to taste, how we expect it to feel, how we expect it to kind of blend with our milk and our sugar in whatever kind of geographical context that you're drinking your tea, right, kind of works to kind of uh, normalize the production system. And that production system, when it comes to black tea, is a plantation. And it's not just a plantation in India, right, there's similar kind of things can be said, about like kind of broadening it out to like East Africa and Sri Lanka as well, right, because when you approach your, you know, favored bag of Blended black tea. It is a blend of tea from Sri Lanka, as well as India, as well as East Africa. And what's really cool, (laughs) really fascinating to me about blends is that that blend, that bag of blended tea, can only taste the same month to month, year to year, because it's different. Because tea is so variable, the people who are kind of making those standardized blends need to kind of work across that difference to make sameness. So anyway, the book is actually about a lot of things, but at the heart, it's like. How is the plantation still a thing? It's kind of the, the operative question of it all.
4: So I guess we wanted you to talk about the reproduction of distinction in the contexts where you work, where that could be differentiation or identification, kind of depending on the process that're that you're looking at.
1: And, you know, it's an interesting question. I think maybe it didn't come up so much in the book, maybe in the conclusion it came up. And it was this question. And I think, yeah, the relationship between alterity and sameness, specifically in the art that I included in the conclusion, Whereas I was thinking about how you can take things that, you know, were so familiar, you know, which was this fresco in Siguria, and the, the artist, Tanisha Somosundaram, took it and made it to look like the likening of a tea plantation worker, and then called out the distinction. Right. That she's like, this mountain doesn't have UNESCO heritage. This mountain doesn't get the recognition that, you know, and these women don't get the recognition that these dead women. Right. Have um, on these frescoes that you have to like climb up a huge mountain and go and find. And so I'm interested in that because I think on every level in the, in the book, like the chapter about homes, right. These homes, you know, you can say, here's, here's your single family home. And it's got a chimney and these like blueprints, which which I'm always fascinated by the idea of the blueprint, because it is, you know, alterity. It's radically different from what you live in. Right. And it's, you know, and I've seen these houses degrade over time, especially the double level houses um, in terms of like chimney and smoke, ventilation issues, and also mold um, issues and environmental climate. And so seeing how alterity is set like that in in these kind of material visions for a future plantation that's just, right? Um, to think of Sarah's you know earlier work and to think about kind of, yes, you can have housing and they have these blueprints of all these houses on this, this monocropped land that's like, you know, basically a landslide waiting to happen, right? If you clear this land and put all these houses there. And then also this kind of nudging history, this kind of doubt where people don't want to live in those houses, right? They're like, we have been living here forever. We just want a living wage. We want, yes, we like a house, but you realize how disruptive it is to actually build a house. Um, you know, and and raise down your old house that you put so much cash into. And so I think these moments come up really Harshly in the book and also experientially for me came up, you know, especially one moment just sitting with a worker and his family. And we were watching houses being made, these single family houses, which were part of this housing act through the Modi government. And we're watching it, you know, being constructed, so land being raised down. And we saw these houses and we're sitting there in their line rooms and we're watching and we're like, I mean, do you want to live there? And they're like, I mean, if it happens, you know, it happens, but you know, when is it going to happen? And what's that process going to look like? So there's something that about that discursive relationship that doesn't capture living, right? And it's it reminds me of Levinas and this idea of like you can't witness death and like unless it's in the death of another, right? You can't you wouldn't witness your own death, right? This idea of like you know, so if you're really in it, you would be like, this is what it's like to pick up house and move. And I've seen those experiences for those who are, you know, trapped in landslides and they go have to go live in a decommissioned tea factory and they have to eventually leave and they don't have a house. And so no one captures that. They just imagine the vision. And so there's always push for the future. And I think in Sri Lanka, there's always a push for the transition and transitional justice and thinking about when the transition happens, will be okay. But it's not going to be okay. (laughs) And for those, I think Most clearly it came out to me, and this is not so much about my work, but, you know, I am tracking it now because I work in Northern Province. But recently, um, you know, and, you know, just some context about Sri Lanka, there's a number of people who disappeared after the war, a good, you know, they say above 100,000, but right now the number is like, you know, 20 to 40,000. And, you know, Right when the government, you know, resumed back to the Rajapaksa regime and the Secretary of Defense became the president in 2019, he shortly announced afterwards for women who were staging protests, you know, staging silent protests, seated down by the road, asking for their sons, fathers, you know, children to come home, holding up pictures of these disappeared. He said, you're missing are considered dead and just left it like that. And so to kind of say that in the face of a photograph and in a protest was this kind of moment, I think, when I think of like this inability to see that the difference that someone's experiencing, just saying, you know, you're missing our dead. And they might be, but, you know, the idea of the protest to be like, stop protesting. It was like this silent gesture. And I think that analytically, I'm interested kind of in what, what that has to do with an afterlife of the plantation, because oftentimes there are death registers that we, you know, that are just sitting there and there's all these deaths that you see. And this is very much the case in the American South plantation to thinking about, you know, the ways in which we remember the afterlife of the plantation. And, you know, what is Sri Lanka doing with all that death, right? And so this is a a little bit of a sad note to end on, but I I think that, you know, I am interested in this question of witnessing and and what
2: that means. Sarah, your work, Tasting Qualities, seems to be more about this replication of sameness through mm-hmm. differentness. And then also, the, you know, in the title of Darjeeling Distinction, it's all about distinguishing it from other things. So,
3: I mean, and also, I mean, this question actually got me wondering about how maybe development writ large, but certainly kind of agricultural certification e.g. fair trade but you know organic biodynamic in a a way kind of hinges on the fetish of alterity but kind of the reality of sameness and maybe that's kind of the square peg in a round hole problem when it gets kind of to like why development projects continue to fail um, is that that kind of taking a set of abstract similar you know same standards that you know were devised in say coffee and applied kind of like blanketed, you know, in a, in a blanket fashion to a tea plantation in the Himalayan mountains, um, things don't work like they, uh, work in, you know, Nicaraguan coffee cooperatives, um, (laughs) go figure, but right. The, the project kind of hinges on that, like, there should be this kind of like sameness across difference and, and anyway, but like, I mean the, your, your question actually, I think, um, to me kind of is, is, is an interesting kind of um, reflection on 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 that project and how, in different contexts, for different reasons, whatever is you know whatever is being developed, like whatever the object or subject of development may be, um, we see kind of similar problems that hinge on that relationship between alterity and sameness. Um, yeah, that's interesting.
2: So, by way of wrapping up, like yeah what what is on on the horizon, I mean, my three have kind of alluded to some of what you're what you're about to be doing some research into is is that um i mean it's hard to sort of imagine doing field work at the moment, but um yeah, what's on the horizon for you both
1: yeah, sure i you know it is really hard to imagine, and it's it's especially just seeing that Sri Lanka is in a lockdown right now and was kind of off and on in the lockdown, but now back and the cases are rising. And it's, you know, so the project, yeah, I started it in 2018 and, you know, went in 2019, but then didn't get to go last year. And and hope I'm not sure about this year. It doesn't seem likely. So, you know, so the project is actually looking, there's two kind of sets of projects. One is looking at kind of how in Northern province landlessness, but also, you know, multiple forms of displacement over a kind of larger history of land grabs and also clearing of land to make it habitable. Um, you know, so f- in the kind of 1950s, these land programs started where hill country Thummels from the plantations were told, you can go up north and we'll give you a set of land. You can stay there. You can like clear the land for us, basically, and be workers. But then when the war happened, they were basically kicked off the land. They were displaced. And now they're coming back and saying, you know, well, this is our land. Right. We were given the land. And they were like, no, you weren't. Right. So <laughs> they're landless and they're fighting for land rights and deeds. And so everyone's on these kind of perpetrators like non-permanent deeds like land development organization lead uh, deeds. And so, kind of looking at the politics of that around caste, but also around, just you know, we think about distinction, this idea that, oh, they're from the Northern Hill Country, um, and looking at the kind of very, you know, right now, because it's preliminary fieldwork, was looking at kind of how that's on a day-to-day basis in, in terms of kinship relations, so there's, you know, in terms of intermarriage with uh, Sri Lankan Tamils and Northern Hill Country Tamils over generations, but also, you know, questions of sc- uh, discrimination in the education system, um, work economy but also the heavy militarization that's still present in the North. Um, And also having formally, some of them have formally fought for the LTTE. So that kind of stigma of having fought for the LTTE, but then also not being considered part of this kind of larger Tamil nationalism. But it's fuzzy because a lot of them are actually kind of sympathetic towards the movement or had been in the past. So thinking about kind of the politics of that and seeing where the plantation histories live beyond the plantation in Sri Lanka and the kind of, you know, strength of the plantation and the mentalities, the oppression of caste and also of class distinctions that kind of traveled with those with those stories of displacement. And then the other project, because I'm here and I'm like, I've always wanted to write about it, is I'm writing about um, the filming of Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. So it's, and it's not necessarily just that film, but it's, um, a fil- I'm writing about kind of things that, films that took place in Hollywood that were shot on Plantations in Sri Lanka. Um, so Elephant Walk, which was, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, um, originally Vivian Lee, but she had a breakdown. And so in the 1950s, and then um, Tarzan the Ape Man, which is a horrible film, um, which you know has a history of being shot also in the plantation areas. And, and just kind of thinking of what are the labor histories and also the kind of speculative afterlives, especially for Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, which was meant to take place in 1934, and you know, the story that's obviously you know very racist in its depictions um that India rejected right so Sri Lanka said open arms come right so (laughs) come and shoot here and so I've been talking to some people involved in the film um the shooting but also kind of um looking at document-based images um and watching it a lot (laughs) so yeah
2: (laughs) that's yeah it sounds like a a fun fascinating project and how about you Sarah anything I mean you've just had this book published so
3: so it's kind of becoming like the third part in a plantation trilogy. Um, I'm kind of, kind of thinking about it in a very basic level about like how does the how does the plantation feed itself? Like, I mean, it's producing all of this tea, and that's not edible. Um, the whole kind of system was based on, as I mentioned earlier, question about you know, uh, answer to an earlier question about you know, kind of recruiting the poly workers with land so they can you know grow their own food as plantations grew, that land unsurprisingly got taken away in, you know, incremental steps uh, for housing more workers. So plantations needed to kind of buy their own food, right? And so it's kind of informed and thinking about what a lot of people are thinking about right now with like Sylvia Winter's work on plantation, right, which in the case of Caribbean slave plantations was were more contiguous as geographical spaces, right? This is a purposeful Disaggregation in the British colonial project in India of, of having food producing enclaves, and they're very much kept as enclaves. And in the case that I'm working on, it's in Kalimpong, which is just over the river from Darjeeling. So these are kind of like two towns that kind of face each other across the Teesta River, like way up in the northern part of West Bengal. Um, Kalimpong's on the the Bhutan border, is a you know, where where Darjeeling kind of sits closer to the Nepal border. And Kalimpong was developed. Um, just like plantations were developed as an agricultural, like a food producing enclave. And so I'm looking at, instead of the histories of like plantation development, I'm I'm looking at the histories of agricultural extension. So like agricultural extension may be familiar to those, right? Who work with land grant universities or or at like myself at a land grant university, um, kind of wrapped up in the land grant mission is Right, working with farmers to produce more food, and this was also part of, particularly in Bengal, the uh, the British uh, British colonial project in Bengal. um, Right, informed by preventing famines or or not having or having kind of self quote unquote self sufficient farmers um, that would uh, insulate themselves from famine. Um, and so anyway, so yeah, so kind of looking at um, Kalimpong as this kind of agricultural community and um, thinking about questions of settlement and kind of what settlement meant in the colonial period as a way to kind of make people fixed, indigenous and Nepali uh, people alike, fixed on plots of land to produce food for the state and so that the state can extract rents from them. And then what are the kind of legacies and effects of that Fixing that settlement, um, like settlement as a colonial kind of uh, term of art, um, to kind of sensations and at, like affective uh, notions of settlement in terms of like how people feel settled on their land today, um, especially in the context of rapid climate change and landslides, right? Which my also, my three also mentioned um, uh, in the Himalayan mountains, right? So, so that's kind of that's what I'm working on, and whenever I can ever get back to uh, the mountains. Episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded and produced by Matt Barlow on the lands of the Kerner people. We acknowledge their elders, past, present, and emerging. The episode was edited by Matt Barlow and David Border-Giles. Conversations in Anthropology Collective is David Border-Giles, Tim Neal, Michelin Maher, Matt Barlow, and me, Cameo Daly. We're supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. And the pod is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And subscribe to catch future episodes. Thanks for listening.